ETF Prime is hosted by investment advisors of the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF.com or any of its affiliates. ETF.com's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF.com of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, great show this week. Joining me will be Janelle Jackson, head of US ETF Capital Markets at Vanguard, who of course is the country's second largest ETF issuer, approaching $2 trillion in, in assets. And Janelle occupies a really interesting position at Vanguard because her responsibilities include ensuring all of their ETFs always have active and liquid markets. So she works with all of the key parties behind the scenes to make sure that happens, including market makers. And along with that, part of her role involves educating the broader investing public on ETF trading, uh, things like best trading practices and other factors to be aware of when executing ETF trades. So we're going to cover all of that. And we'll discuss the most recent ETF launch from Vanguard, which these don't happen often. And this is actually their first actively managed bond ETF the Vanguard Ultra Short Bond ETF, ticker VUSB. Now, also on the show this week will be Euclid Investment Advisories, John Creekmer and Carl Ashley. They're behind the Euclid Capital Growth ETF, ticker symbol EUCG. This is the first ETF from Euclid, also actively managed, by the way. And among other things, this ETF uses trend following to determine whether to go risk on or risk off in the markets. So John and Carl will walk through that ETF, and I want to get their thoughts on the markets right now, because they actually have quite a bit of subjectivity in terms of how they manage the holdings in this ETF. So I'm very curious to hear how they're approaching the markets, what they view as areas of opportunity, things keeping them up at night. I do feel like there's a lot of bubble talk out there right now, so we'll uh, discuss that as well. Now, to start this week, I have ETF.com's Drew Voros on the line with me from California. If you missed this, last week, Drew co-hosted ETF.com's annual award ceremony. Of course, these awards honor the best the ETF industry has to offer. I always enjoy these each year, and I thought Drew did just an excellent job with this year's event. So we're going to cover some of the highlights right now. Time now for our weekly chat with the experts at ETF.com the world's leading independent authority on ETFs. I think we're seeing a different way of ETFs being launched. The real kicker was governance, selling of private data. They really let down their customers repeatedly. Drew, I've got to tell you, that jacket that you wore for the award ceremony, that thing was on fire. I, I was seriously impressed. Honestly, a little bit <laughs> jealous. I need one of those. Well, you can find anything online nowadays. Uh, Nate, but uh, <laughs> it, anyways, yeah, we had fun with it. You know, we were in Hollywood. You don't want to be shy when you're there. Um, and we tried to put on a variety show and, and something different. We wear seat of our pants, literally. Uh, had a little bit of a, you know, high school play production feel to it. But we were in a professional sound studio with professional technicians. Uh, Jim Wyatt's, our, you know, the former ETF.com uh, founder, uh, has a new operation called Spark Network that helped with production um, in the context um, uh, in the context in Hollywood with talent with Luca Closer, very great uh, singer. You know, I was right there. I mean, her voice is—I won't say Adele, but it's right up there. Um, we're going to hear more from her. So we, we we try to put on a show, and I think what we we had not just a variety show, if you will, but I thought the awards really showed a variety of the industry. Um, you know, we had multiple double winners. Uh, ARC might have taken the headline with, you know, ETF issuer of the year and ETF of the year 
a Global X one, uh, two awards, uh, and then sort of back to the future, if we want to stay on a Hollywood theme, dimensional fund advisors, you know, new to the ETF space, long time uh, in the fund management space, wins ETF new issue of the year and also won a, an award. So there were multiple winners, but also the stalwarts were in there. You know, Vanguard, you know, not, I guess unsurprisingly wins new U.S. fixed income ETF. When Vanguard comes out, people pay attention to their products. And this is something, uh, it was their Vanguard ESG U.S. corporate uh, ETF, which was something new Vanguard hadn't done. So it attracted attention. And then iShares won for a smart beta fund. So we had the big, the small, uh, a nice variety all over the board, both in the winners and the issuers. This was the eighth annual ETF.com awards. Is that right? That's right. The first year was more of a kind of on paper. Uh, the second year we had an event, and of course last year the pandemic wiped you know all events off. So it's been it's been a weird kind of event that has both been you know two dimensional, three dimensional, and you know variety show now. So who knows what next year will be. Well, I do want to highlight a few of the winners. You ran through some of them uh, there. And I, I do want to also note for people who missed the award show, would definitely encourage you to check out the full recap that ETF.com's Heather Bell put together. She has all of the nominees and winners posted at ETF.com. We you, also have a replay of the show. That's too. right. I was going to mention that. If, if people want to see your colorful jacket, they can go back and watch the award ceremony. Um, let, let's start with the obvious one that, that you touched on. ARK Invest. And I don't think it was any big surprise. ARK was selected as ETF issuer of the year. The ARK Innovation ETF, ticker ARKK, that was selected as ETF of the year. At this point, I mean, are there any more superlatives to, to describe the year Kathy Wood and ARK had? I, I just think it's, I, we haven't quite fathomed it yet. Um, think about it. Nobody in the ETF industry could have said an issue with $5 billion in assets in one year is going to go from $5 billion to $50 billion and, frankly, become the new talk of Wall Street, not just in the ETF industry, but Wall Street in general, because it has crossed into active. It has crossed into the disruptor um, environment during our disruptor generation as, he, as, as we speak. So the, the story in itself is still being written, but just the arc we've seen in the last year, I mean, how can you go unnoticed? And the performance of the funds, the biggest funds, have, you know, gave investors double their money one year and continues, even though they hit some bumps, continues to ride what is obviously what was the theme we saw throughout the show is sort of this next generation, both in issuers and products and next gen, you know, following into technology, which was the ARC um, playbook in, in both next generation and active management. And we also saw it with QQJ the second generation of the Invesco 100 tech fund, the, the next 100. You know, here, here's a fund that, you know, won two awards and its index won index of the year uh, because not only is it resonating, people understand that these products are working. And even though we're in, a, you could argue, a bull market, um, the results are are there and, and the assets are going. And it's just representative of the whole market. The market's, you know, more money is in the market uh, right now at all-time highs and you know where this goes we don't know but right now the market's uh at 28 years old I, I think in a very mature spot right now and we're seeing growth continue to go all over the place and the tentacles that you know a six trillion dollar business can can sustain qqqj that you mentioned that's the invesco nasdaq next gen 100 etf that really cleaned up at the award so that one best new etf Best new U.S. equity ETF. The index underlying that ETF won index of the year. I, I, I'd love to expand on that a little bit more. I mean, why do you think that ETF resonated so much? Because I think QQQ was a product everybody understood and, and frankly has been performing. I think last year performed 40%. And, and granted, the SPY, everything has been doing well. But, but people have kind of looked at tech now as not, you know, 20 years ago it was this may fall apart at any time. Now it's like, are they going to hit their earnings? How big are they going to be? These are real industries that people have grown and made a lot of money on. But we're in a different wave now. Everything kind of falls off the wayside after 20 years. Um, and not saying that the QQ is ever going to go away, but there's a whole new batch of companies that are, that are huge in relative stance to 20 years ago that are, are really breaking some new ground. Um, and that's where a lot of this money, the ARC money, QQJ money is going. Um, and, and it's feeding capital into these, into this, this entire industry. 
um, that I think is, you know, doing great work in, in so many areas, you know, from financial to medicine, all over, all over. Um, so I think it's just something people believe in, they've seen, and they've seen the results from past performance in QQ. That's not to say they're connected in any way. But the other thing that we're seeing with this next generation is sort of, I hate to say it, but built-in leverage. So, for instance, QQJ has outperformed QQ from its inception in October, 27, 28% to 20%. Um, and I think people kind of expect that. So when they see next gen, they're kind of like, this is going to give me a little bit more. I also think investors are savvy enough to know when things fall, they're going to fall. So on a bad day, QQJ will fall uh, further than QQQ. You're going to get that fit law of physics playing. But right now, QQJ seems to giving uh, the investor a little bit more bang for their buck, and it's in that sweet spot in the market that a lot of people are putting their assets into. One interesting aspect, at least that I find, to QQQJ, and I think I mentioned this to uh, CFRA's Todd Rosenbluth back around this time, this ETF launch, but I, I really like this move from Invesco launching this ETF because I feel like Invesco hasn't been nearly aggressive enough in developing new products. I mean, if you think about this, they're the fourth largest ETF issuer. They do have a, a, a huge flagship product in QQQ, one of the largest ETFs in the world. And to me, it just seems like they've been sort of passive overall in, in leveraging their, their, their position in the ETF market. So I really like them launching this ETF. Uh, they also launched a miniature version of QQQ, ticker symbol QQQM. Uh, but, but to your point, I mean, these are clearly resonating. Yeah, and again, that's always criticism of the, of the big ETF issuers that, you know, they only put one out or they only put two out. Every time they put something out, it works incredibly well. So they have already sustained good, very, you know, proven business models. So when they put out a product, it's thoughtful, they expect it to work, uh, and they expect investors to like it. So there's a lot of research that goes into it. You know, part of the ETF industry reputation is, you know, throw spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks. Um, a lot of companies uh, do just the opposite. So when it happens, it's like, well, they're not being innovative enough, or they come out with something that they copied it. Um, it's just product development in a different, more thoughtful manner that seems to work every time they put something out. Go going back to ARK Invest, so I thought ETF.com, Cynthia Murphy, she had a fantastic interview with Kathy Wood during the mm -hmm. awards event. I, I really enjoyed this. And I would say Kathy touched on many of the areas you might expect in terms of disruptive innovation. She talked about active management, but I thought she made some particularly interesting comments around non-transparent ETFs. And I, I want to read these. She said, quote, non-transparent active doesn't seem to be taking off. She said, quote, ETF investors love their transparency. And then she also talked about the potential viral networking effect of the transparent wrapper, which We've talked about this before, right? Her point is that everyone can see your stock picks every single day. And because of that, perhaps that generates additional discussion and attention around those picks. You have other fund managers watching these, individual investors copying them, media outlets running stories anytime Kathy Wood makes a move. And so, you know, maybe all of that helps boost these individual stocks and, and certainly interest in the ARK ETFs. Did you have any thoughts on those comments? I mean, it's all relative in terms of is it catching on? Well, I think American Century would argue that it is, maybe not $5 billion to $50 billion, um, but there's two hundred over $200 billion in the active space in ETFs, and we can slice it and dice it, non-transparent, transparent, fixed income or not. Um, the fact is there is, you know, and, and granted, she's king of the hill in, in this department, you know, $50 billion of that $200 billion in ETFs uh, in the U.S. are are her assets or ARC's assets, uh, but I th I think that she's hit a home run, and you know she's taking a full advantage of going from five billion to fifty billion and all the media attention she's getting to saying I have got the recipe, and and this is what the investors want. What I think she's done is drawn a whole new set of investors into not into this into the her uh, ETFs. I think most of our investors don't even know if it's transparent or not. They know it's ARC. They've Good seen point. it. They read it. Uh, and, and they're going to where they think the puck is, <laughs> and the great Wayne Gretzky quote. Um, so I don't. I think we get in the industry get too hung up on it. And I, use, I fought this from day one, and I'm losing it. The idea of non-transparent versus semi-transparent versus transparent. 
I mean, to me, it's that's just the, the fine ingredients. Most people, is it an active fund? Yes. Okay, well, now I need to go look a little bit harder on how this active fund works. Um, but again, you look into the, the biggest, uh, prior to our coming on the scene, the biggest uh, active funds in the U.S. listed ETF space are short-term income, bond funds, very boring things. Um, but someone sees that, do they think that's active or I'm going to go to an index short-term? I think people just go where they feel comfortable. Um, and if it's in a non-transparent fund, it is. And if it's in a uh, transparent fund that's doubling money, I don't, I don't think people care, really, frankly, if it's an index or it's active. They know it's a next-generation technology. This is a proven issuer. Um, uh, people look at past performance. It's just the way they do it. And that's where the assets are right now. And she's trying to take full advantage of it, and she should. She's earned it. All right. Another award I definitely want to highlight is the Lifetime Achievement Award. This went to uh, Matt Hogan, who's currently Chief Investment Officer at Bitwise. Of course, before that, Matt was president of ETF.com. He was uh, chairman of Inside ETFs. I feel like he's really been a, a key spokesperson for the entire ETF industry for, what, well over a decade now. Um, do, do you want to offer a few thoughts on what Matt has meant to the ETF space? Because you've worked directly with him. Yeah, so, so Matt hired me uh, over 10 years ago, as did uh, Dave Nodding and Jim Wyatt. Um, so I have a little different perspective, and I, it, but I think it's all on the same path. And, you know, back in the day that, you know, Jim Wyatt, uh, who I mentioned before, and Dave Nodick, um, you know, they, and Matt really were the, you know, the three holy trinity of ETF.com. Matt, the vision, I mean, Jim, the vision, and Dave Nodick really, you know, the brains, the tech whiz, and, and Matt was the messenger and could really convey and, you know, frankly, had the charisma to really pull the message of ETFs into the world. Um, and I think he, he did that not only with ETF.com, but obviously with Inside ETFs, and again, along with Jim and, and Dave. Uh, but, but Matt resonates uh, in, in a way with people, both um, in a big public room and within a business deal. So he's also very represented, you know, the, a business that was key to the growth of ETFs, and that's, that was able to not only – talk to people about ETFs, but also put them under a journalistic magnifying glass and bringing some credibility to a product and saying, you know, and we lost hundreds of thousands of dollars early on on advertising when we said this this product's better than that product. Well, we're not going to advertise with you. Well, that's not the choice here. The choice is which is the best product for what we believe in uh, for investors. And that's always been our mission is, you know, trying to provide uh, what's best for investors, most information, best education, and Matt has been at the forefront of that. And I led it through uh, Inside ETFs where he brought together, you know, and, and, and is known for it. You know, everyone wants to argue about who did this, who did that, but Matt has obviously resonated with the public that helped us all understand ETFs, but also was not easily fooled by the industry. So he's always kind of acted as a, as a filter, as is everybody who's ever at least I've worked with at ETF.com, has always had that mission. And, and I think the thing that Matt's doing now is trying to bring ETFs, again, democratizing areas that are very difficult for most investors to access. Uh, and he's been at a forefront in the crypto space, not just with Bitcoin, but, um, you know, it does Bitwise. His company he's with now has a, has a fund out that's, a, you know, off-traded uh, crypto index fund that has a billion dollars in it because the SEC has been – uh, against any kind of crypto product. We're getting really close to a Bitcoin ETF, uh, and that's expected now, whereas two, three years ago, we're still way off. So a year from now, I expect, you know, Matt to carry on, you know, what's going on in the ETF world and what he did into the Bitcoin world. I'm, I'm, the jury's out with me for Bitcoin. Uh, I think it's a great story for me as a journalist. Um, but I really don't know what's going to happen with that. But it's it's sort of like the ETF days again. So Matt's used to this, the doubters, um, and then also bringing information to people who really want it. Drew, I think that's really well said. And actually, I, I liked your phrase, how Matt has pulled the message of ETFs into the world. Because when I think mm -hmm. of Matt, I really think of education. I, I just feel like Matt has an uncanny ability to take more complex topics and make them digestible. He's an extremely effective communicator. And to me, he, he did. He, he helped bridge that gap from financial jargon and, and some of the complexities around ETFs to help make them more mainstream. And, and now it looks like he's doing the same thing with crypto. It's truly a, a gift, which, by the way, I have to mention, 
I'm not sure if Matt in, intended this during the uh, award ceremony, but he, he spilled the beans a little bit. He said he was working on a Bitcoin ETF the morning of the award show, uh, which definitely caught my attention because, of, of course, Bitwise hasn't formally filed or refiled for an ETF. And I, I actually tweeted this out. So Reggie Brown, who was last year's Lifetime Achievement Award winner, he said, uh, quote, it's time for crypto ETFs in the U.S. I thought that was a big statement coming from him. You also had both Tyler and Cameron uh, Winklevoss at the awards event. They both said it's possible we see a Bitcoin ETF in the U.S. by the end of the year. So, you know, Bitcoin ETFs were definitely threaded throughout the awards. And, uh, hey, hey, you never know. Maybe a Bitcoin ETF will win an award for 2021. Uh, we can't rule that out. Uh, I, I, I heavy, heavy odds that something would win with the word Bitcoin on it when it comes out that year. Um, but I think it's just that's the way awards are. You know, this is something people have been waiting for. And we'll see again. You know, the proof is in the Bitcoin, not necessarily, you know, the, the vessel it's in. Um, we're at 50,000, 60,000 today. Um, over the weekend, it dipped 5,000. You know, there was certain panic going on. That here it comes. Here it comes. So people still think there's a trap door here. Um, and that's what makes it a fun product, especially if you don't have any money into it. Well, Drew, again, great job with the awards this year. Hopefully this will be in person next year. I, I know I'd love to attend, but really nice job by you and your team. Again, I would encourage listeners to go look at the full list of nominees and, uh, and winners at ETF.com. But thank you for joining me this week. Thank you, Nate, and thank you for your continued support. Thank you. That was ETF.com's Drew Voros. My next guest is Janelle Jackson, head of U.S. ETF Capital Markets at Vanguard, who, of course, is one of the largest ETF issuers, currently offering 82 ETFs with nearly $1.8 trillion invested, including their most recent launch, the Vanguard Ultra Short Bond ETF, ticker symbol VUSB, which we will spend a few minutes discussing. I now have uh, Janelle on the line with me from Pennsylvania. Janelle, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me this week. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and, and following up uh, some crypto conversation. Now we've got <laughs> Vanguard on the line. <laughs> crypto conversation is always threaded through uh, ETF Prime, uh, for better or worse. Uh, Janelle, what, I think when some investors hear U.S. ETF capital markets, which you oversee at Vanguard, that sounds a little bit intimidating. It's yeah. a pretty fancy name. And so I thought we'd start by pulling back the curtain a little bit on this area, because I think it's one investors should, should actually view as very client friendly, which we can certainly talk about why that's important in a moment. But, but let's start by having you explain what the capital markets team does. What are some of the functions here? For sure. So to demystify the role of a capital markets desk, our mission is really to help investors have the best experience and achieve the lowest trading costs when they're buying and selling ETFs. So what we do at Vanguard is we partner with liquidity providers, that's market makers and authorized participants, to help them understand our products and processes so they can quote as tight to the basket as possible. That means providing the lowest possible price to clients who want to buy uh, and the highest possible price to clients who want to sell. We also educate users of ETFs on how to trade our ETFs, like hopefully I'm going to do today, uh, pitfalls to avoid, and best practices unique to a client's specific situation or product interest. You know, it's interesting because when I think about the Vanguard ethos, I think longer term, buy and hold, low cost investing, mm -hmm. but you're tasked with ensuring high quality day-to-day -day trading execution. D does that sort of put you in an odd position? Like, do you get dirty <laughs> looks when you go to get coffee? <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, not so much anymore. I think um, given the, the size of the desk, uh, people are asking if I'd like to join them for coffee. So in the past, ETFs were really viewed as short-term instruments given intraday pricing and trading flexibility. But we've found that long-term investors have been just as attracted to the benefits of ETFs, especially recently given the rise of commission-free trading. 
it's really up to the individual investor and their unique preferences, um, their tax considerations. But we hope that whatever structure an investor chooses is, you know, a high quality, low cost solution to keep more money in their pocket and help them achieve positive investment outcomes. Well, let's talk about some of those best ETF trading practices that you alluded to earlier. Uh, obviously, the price you buy or sell an ETF at does factor into overall re- returns, even for longer-term investors. Yeah. What tips would you offer to the average retail investor or financial advisor? Oh uh, Yeah, I could go on and on about this all day. So I'll start with the most important in case people uh, zoom, zoom out at the end. Um, but In general, one of the most important trading best practices for ETFs is thinking about the order type when you're placing an ETF order. So in general, using a marketable limit order uh, instead of a market order. So marketable limit orders are limit orders that are placed slightly above the ask or offer when you're buying and slightly below the best bid when you're selling. So say a penny away from what that on-screen price looks like. The advantage here relative to a market order is that you have more price control and protection over where your trade's executed, but you'll still have some trading flexibility. Something else that is really important is the time of day that you're trading. So a couple of things to note here is placing orders on the open and into the close. So in general, trading in the morning, you may see wider spreads because price discovery is still going on in those underlying securities. Around the close, uh, to some lesser extent, we've seen some asset classes like domestic equities receive good execution, but you'll still want to be thoughtful when you're trading other asset classes or maybe at the end of volatile days because there may still be some imbalances. So as an ETF investor, when possible, you should consider allowing some time to pass before trading in the morning, and you should be careful waiting until the last minute to trade large sizes into the close. For trading international ETFs, the time of day also really matters. So it's important um, to think about trading international ETFs at times that coincide with the trading hours of those underlying securities local markets. So the price of an international ETF tends to be closer to fair value the value of those underlying securities when the trading hours of the underlying markets and U.S. market overlap. So you think about the mornings until, say, around 11 or 11.30 Eastern Standard Time. Something else that's really important for trading best practices is being mindful of market events that could lead to spikes in volatility during the day. So if you take a look at an ETF on days when, you know, maybe there's a Fed announcement in the afternoon, So you'll typically see spreads widen out right around 2 p.m. as the market starts to digest information from whatever Jay Powell has said. Um, And those spreads will usually revert right back to their normal levels in the next 30 minutes or so. But you could really lose out on cost advantages uh, if you're trading during these volatile times. Um, Something else just specific to advisors, you know, when in doubt, you can call a capital markets team for help. You know, reach out to your sales executive and have them get in touch with us. We're here to help you with best execution. If you've got a custodian's block trading desk or a high-touch desk, you know, they're really the pros and they know how to reach out to us so that we can support large trades. And a common question that we get is around what really constitutes a large trade. You think about equities and average daily trade volume, it's not really the same for ETF given the creation redemption mechanism. So you should really take into consideration the liquidity of the underlying securities that make up that ETF basket. So if you're trading in size of maybe 5 to 10% of ADV, you might want to give us a call. Um, And if you're trading over 10% of ADV, you definitely want to give us a call. Can you expand a little bit on that last point? Because I, I do think that some investors will look at an ETF's average daily volume, and if it's pretty light, they'll just assume that maybe they can't get good trade execution, and so they just stay away from, from that ETF altogether. Can you talk a little bit more about that and, and, and maybe why that's not necessarily the route they need to go? Yeah, I mean, this really goes to the role of ETFs as shock absorbers. So much of the trading in ETF goes on in the secondary market, which is what you'll see on screen, and that's what's really driving that ADV number. Um, But what goes on with the creation redemption mechanism is that you can partner with a market maker, an AP, to create new shares of an ETF. So 
when you're trading on the secondary market or on exchange, you don't have to transact in those underlying securities. But if you're going to create or redeem in a product, you can even exceed a product's average daily trade volume because you're going out to transact directly in those underlying securities. The market maker will facilitate those trades on your behalf. Um, so the average daily trade volume of that ETF may or may not be relevant uh, given the liquidity of those underlying securities because that's really what that market maker is trading on your behalf. Going back to that first tip that you mentioned, using marketable limit orders, I feel like this is probably the most common tip that investors will hear when, when trading ETFs and probably the most important uh, tip overall. A, a question I have here is, any tips on striking that right balance between getting execution on a trade and paying a fair price? Because I've experienced firsthand where, let's say you'll set a limit order and that, it, that trade doesn't end up executing if the limit order is too tight and then you end up chasing a price, right? So a, a, any tips on finding that right balance? I know you mentioned a, a penny above bid or, or, or ask, but mm-hmm. um, I mean, how do you find that balance to make sure you get execution but also protect yourself? Yeah, I mean, uh, the protection that comes with a marketable limit order is probably the most important aspect of this trade order type. You know, if you do place a market order, that trade's going to get executed. If that's what's most important to you, uh, that's why we probably still see investors use market orders. But we see a lot of investors get poor execution or they're wondering where they may have overpaid if they're buying an ETF. Um, it really depends on the volatility of the ETF during the day. If the price is moving around a lot, you may have to set that band a little bit wider than a penny away. Um, to your point, that trade might not get executed if you're trading a cent or two um, away from the price. But it's just something to be mindful of as you're monitoring the price of this specific ETF. But we typically see positive executions. You know, If you're being mindful of the price, the volatility in the market in that day, and then you know determining what band is going to get your ETF order executed at a price you're comfortable with. That's what's most important. You, you mentioned financial advisors, if they have, let's say, more significant trades, I don't, I don't know, in the millions of dollars, being comfortable calling the capital markets desk. Yeah. And I know every trade is different. As we just discussed, it's really driven by the underlying holdings in an ETF. But I just want to be clear, be clear here. I mean, is there any guidance you can provide for when it really makes sense to call the desk? Because I know some advisors may go, well, my, my trade's not really big enough to warrant that. Um, I, I just want to be clear. When is a trade big enough to warrant calling a capital markets desk? Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a, not an answer that you can provide in dollars, just given the you know, range of size, especially when you think about some of the Vanguard products. There will be trades in, you know, the millions of dollars that can be executed um, without coming to the capital markets desk, just given the amount of volume that's traded and the liquidity of the products. Um, Back to the conversation earlier that we were having about ADV, I would say if, you know, you're trading over 10% of that average daily trade volume, that's really where, you know, the size impact could help you have a stronger partner in that execution. We know the market makers who are active in our products and can get you the best pricing and the best execution. So at that point, um, that was when you would want to reach out to the capital markets desk. All right. I want to talk about this new bond ETF here in a moment. But you mentioned ETFs as shock absorbers. And so while we're talking trading here, I would absolutely love to go back and very briefly get your take on what transpired in the bond market and bond ETFs a little over a year ago, right? Last March. We oh, saw yeah. several bond ETFs, including Vanguard bond ETFs, trade mm-hmm. at meaningful discounts. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like from your perspective? I mean, you, you were right in the middle of this. Did you walk away with, with anything new? Any takeaways? Yeah, I mean, it was, oh, wow. There, were, there was just like a limited amount of sleep going on during <laughs> last March. Uh, I think a lot of us still have uh, some nightmares from thinking of back to that time. But we really learned so much about, you know, market structure, about our products. Um, You know, we hadn't experienced market-wide circuit breakers in a really long time. We had had conversations about, you know, setting the right levels for limit up, limit down. Uh, And we really got to see all of these aspects of the ecosystem uh, come to life during March of 2020. What we really learned then is what we've been saying for a long time was really proven out is that the ETFs ecosystem is really resilient. We saw ETFs maintain their liquidity during last year's market volatility. 
um, buyers and sellers were still able to be matched despite stress in the markets for many of those underlying securities, specifically in the bond markets. So we saw investors who wanted to buy or sell ETFs were still able to do so throughout the market volatility. And that's why we really say we feel like ETFs prove their resiliency during that time. Um, You know, the products are an important source of liquidity and price discovery, and we saw that. Um, And back to the point that I made about ETFs really serving as shock absorbers, given the comments that I made about, you know, much of the trading really occurring on the secondary market on exchange, that meant buyers and sellers were trading shares of the ETF without having to transact in those underlying securities. So ETFs could really absorb that volatility by creating opportunities for traders to transfer risk quickly without affecting the underlying asset classes. So I'd say the overall lesson learned was ETFs did their job. Um, I think there are opportunities for market structure as we think about bond markets specifically. So, you know, we'll continue to have those conversations um, so that investors continue to have positive outcomes when investing in ETFs. What's interesting to me is that since that point in time, we've seen record demand for bond ETFs. And, you know, I know some people like to point to the Fed coming in, but the Fed only bought eight, nine billion dollars in ETFs. Now, certainly they offered a lot of confidence to the market. But do do you feel like the way bond ETFs handled the market crisis last March, do you think that's been a contributing factor to this record demand for bond ETFs just in that perhaps investors do have more confidence in the structure now? They know they can rely on it in in all types of markets. Absolutely. And we saw that. by investors putting their dollars into bond ETFs last year. So we saw 40% of industry inflows go to bond ETFs. And we've still seen positive inflows into bond ETFs in the first quarter of this year, even with some funds posting negative returns, giving rising rates. Um, something else that's been interesting for us at Vanguard is to see you know, some newer products coming to market, some thematic products. But we're still seeing the highest cash flow go into you know, the broadly diversified core bond products. Um, And as an issuer, we've seen nearly half of all flows um, in the first quarter come to Vanguard fixed income ETFs. All right. So that is a perfect segue. We have a few minutes left here. Let's talk about this ETF that just launched a a few weeks ago, the Vanguard Ultra Short Bond ETF, ticker symbol VUSB. To me, I I just feel like it's noteworthy anytime Vanguard launches a new ETF, just because (laughs) these aren't a dime a dozen, right? I mean, Vanguard's very meticulous with new launches. And if I'm not mistaken, Vanguard has never closed an ETF. Is that correct? That is correct in the U.S. Um, this fund, we've, we've heard the demand from our clients for a long time. We're always very thoughtful about our approach to product research and product launches. So Vanguard launched the Ultra Short Bond Fund BUSB on April 7th, and we've already seen inflows of around $350 million. Uh, the product's been around a little under three weeks at this point, so we view that as a pretty successful launch. You know, we've seen a lot of growth in this space, just given the current yield environment. And um, our product team's really done a great job of describing this product and how investors can use it. So people often ask if this is an instrument to replace the use of a money market fund. Um, And we think the role this product plays in a portfolio is really to meet a gap between savings and investments. So if you think about applying time periods to these definitions, say you use six months for your savings and utilize a money market product for that cash. Your investment portfolios for periods beyond this, but if the duration on you know, a short treasury fund is, say, 18 months, you're missing that exposure to the six to 18-month time frame. And that's the part of your portfolio where you could utilize a product like VUSB. Well, and we're not into making market calls on on this podcast, but I think one of the concerns that investors have right now is the potential for rising rates. We saw a little bit of that earlier this year. And so if you have that concern, looking to the shorter duration segment of the ETF market could be a good place to, you know, quote unquote, hide out Mm -hmm. if that is something that you're worried about. And, And also I wanted to note, so this is the first actively managed bond ETF from Vanguard, but this is a similar strategy and and I believe the same management team as the Vanguard ultra short term bond mutual fund. Is that correct? That is correct. I mean, back to your point about, you know, concerns around the current rate environment, That's one of the considerations that we made when we determined 
you know, we wanted to launch an active product. So some of it was investor preference in this space. And then you also have this component of exposure. So we view ultra short as falling into two main category groups. One is being credit focused and the other is, you know, government and money market focused. So that's where you tend to see more conservative index-based products uh, with lower yield, and you've seen some lower returns there. Our product's going to fall on the credit side, so we'll have more corporate exposure, and our duration's a bit longer. And why we did that is because we wanted to offer potential downside protection to buffer against widening spreads in a market downturn. So our active approach provides flexibility between exposure to credit and interest rate risk. And again, in typical Vanguard fashion, the fee on this ETF is 10 basis points, uh, which if you look at the average expense ratio for ultra short-term bond ETFs, just as a category, it's 22 basis points. Uh, Janelle, congratulations on the launch of VUSB. Really enjoyed the conversation this week and, and certainly hope we can visit again soon. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Nate. It was great. That was Janelle Jackson, head of U.S. ETF Capital Markets at Vanguard. I'm now joined by two guests, Euclid Investment Advisories, John Creekmer and Carl Ashley. John is principal with the firm. Carl is chief investment strategist. They're behind the Euclid Capital Growth ETF, ticker symbol EUCG. This is the first ETF launch from the firm. And both John and Carl are, are now on the line with me. Uh, gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Nate, great to be here with you. Well, John, I'll start with you. So Euclid is a registered investment advisory firm. You work with individuals, family offices, other advisory firms. Why did you launch an ETF? That's a great question, Nate. You know, we, uh, I've been working with individuals and pension plans uh, for now for a little bit over 30 years. And I started noticing a number of years ago when we were working with individual clients on the retail side that oftentimes we put together portfolios but then we become surprised on what's actually inside the underlying investments, inside the mutual funds or exchange-traded funds. Or maybe they didn't perform the way that they had communicated they were going to perform. And so that led me to actually look at the difference between our retail clients and the institutional clients that we worked with and looking at pension plans that we saw on different of our clients and to see why, what was the difference. And the main difference was the way the portfolios were actually being managed. And so we started to find what was the main differences, and we saw, you know, they were smart, they were structured, they were systematic as far as in the way in which they analyzed the markets and they analyzed various underlying holdings. And then they used logic. They were built upon a premise um, and a formula of actually listening to the market, what the market was telling them, and then making decisions. And we just felt that this was a tremendous strategy that could be incorporated with individual investors inside their own portfolios. I came across Euclid Investment Advisory a number of years ago, and they have just found the institutional side and separately managed accounts to where they have a process that has been successful for years in which they are systematic, in which they are market-driven, and they have a process that makes sense, and there's no surprises in it. And so we decided, let's go ahead and package this into an ETF and bring it to the marketplace, and it's been received extremely well so far. Yeah, and I think that's a big trend occurring in the ETF space overall, where we are seeing more SMAs moving to the ETF structure, I, I think pri predominantly to take advantage of the, uh, the, the, the tax benefits of the ETF mm -hmm. wrapper. But l let's talk more about the investment process behind this ETF. Again, it is actively managed. Uh, Carl, I'll toss this one your way. Walk us through what this ETF is designed to do. It's designed, <clears throat> very simply, it's designed to take advantage of um, intermediate and long-term trends in the market. It is the it, mar the process is is fundamentally driven by uh, markets. It is market driven. That means we don't look at <clears throat> it seems like it should it could um, it it'll do better next year or this is opening up because we found there's a disc disconnection between what the fundamental analysts say and what the market is actually doing with a particular stock we're in this to extract money from the market and the other part of that is to limit the amount of money the market extracts from us 
And that's why we have a, a fairly nice rising equity curve. That's our goal. And what this does also is that if we have an SMA version of this product and it generates a, a tax liability because we trade not infrequently, but we trade so you would have short-term gains and long-term gains, which are taxable. The ETF version of this model uh, doesn't generate that because all the trading is done within it. So if you, the only time you would have to see a tax consequence with the ETF is when you sold it, assuming that we had capital gains. So it's one of these things that you could put in your portfolio and leave the trading to us. It, it's an advantage for the RIAs and also wealth advisors because they're not, they don't have to address um, um, trading within, a, within client portfolios, individual portfolios. So it's, the, mar- the model is also based on intermarket analysis. So we look at where money is going or what's happening. We look at all the indices around the world. We look at interest rates. We look at gold. We look at currencies. And from that, we, we come up with a pretty good idea of what's happening in the equity market. And uh, we do a review every week to see what has, what happened. In fact, we just finished our investment policy meeting just before this phone call. And we discussed the various attributes of what's going on, and we're going to make some trades later this afternoon. So in a nutshell, it's market-driven. It is based – the question came up, to what degree do we have discretion? Um, This is a rules-based – if you want to call it rules-based, it is uh, mathematically derived, so it's verifiable. It is logical. And we reserve about 10 to 15, maybe 20 percent discretion for the manager – because there are, are unknowns that creep in, and any time you have a fixed system, you're subject to getting um, to getting whacked. So we do leave we do leave decision making um, to the manager. A, a question I have here: When you talk about it being uh, systematic, so is this trend following? What, what's driving that rules based decision making? Oh, clearly, there, there's two things we want to do. We want to have a positive um, slope. Um, to the, to the thing we're buying, if we're buying, for example, uh, a, a, growth, uh, a growth ETF. Oh, incidentally, we buy only index ETFs because uh, they're consistent. Uh, we're not buying other actively managed ETFs. We're buying index ETFs. We have an investment policy which limits, uh, which details what we can buy and what we cannot buy and the amounts there, too. Back to your question, what's driving it, we're looking for a positive trend. And bear in mind, we look at things in two time frames, and actually we do our trading in, in a third time frame. The reason for that, as I found out many years ago, you could, you could drive yourself crazy because you would have indicators in conflict, trends in conflict with each other. And to get that straightened out, we look at a strategic trend first, which is a longer term, and we make a decision. We say it is either bullish it's either on bear alert, bearish, or bull alert. Very simple. And uh, we have a color-coded system that shows that. And there's some discretion that the manager looks at the racking and makes a decision. We also have a computer program that calculates the technical score. And you'd be surprised how close the technical score ranking comes up with what the manager sees. It's similar to the airline pilot looking out the window and verifying what the instruments are saying and vice versa. Uh, number two, once we make a strategic decision, uh, that tells us with either we can go long, we can go short, which we don't do, or we can step aside, just let it pass. If it's long, then we look at the tactical um, time frame and make a decision is do we want an entry now? How's it ranking up with other ETFs? And et cetera. Then we make a, a tactical trading decision. The last screen is uh, is an hourly, um, um, very short term, and that's used what time of day we're going to make an entry or an exit in the market. And uh, so it's it's uh, multiple time frames that do it. And and secondly, we look at to see that the ETF that the process the ETF that we're going to buy is doing better than the benchmark, which which is the the S and P 500. So we have two conditions. It has to have a positive slope, and it has to be doing better than the S&P 500, because that's our benchmark. 
Okay, so if I look at the current holdings, um, and actually, let me just go through these. These are these are a day old. I don't know if they've they've changed at all. But there's a 26% allocation to XLK, the technology sector spider. There's between we'll say roughly nine and 12% in each of consumer discretionary, financials, communication services, and industrials. Again, all sector spiders. 7% in Schwab's U.S. Dividend Equity ETF, ticker SCHD. Uh, roughly 6% in the Spider S&P Home Builders, Retail, right. and Metals and Mining uh, ETFs, three separate ETFs there. 4% in the Spider S&P Transportation ETF, and then about uh, 2% cash. I, I guess either Carl or John, I mean, talk about this exposure right now in, in the thought process. Well, it's we. the first step is to do a sector analysis. And if you look at the XLY, which is the um, uh, consumer discretionary, a lot of these broad sectors have stocks in them that you really don't want. Um, uh, or I shouldn't say want. They're not doing as well as others. So the, 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 that ETF is going up. It's doing better, but it could do better. So what we then look is at selected industry groups within that sector, and in this case, we're looking at uh, XRT, which is the retail, the S&P retail industry group is doing better than it. And we have a nice position in it. So we try to give a little bump or a goose to the sector performance by taking a smaller position in the in a industry uh, subgroup of a sector. The same is true in the in the industrial sector. Uh, where, as you know, we have transportation, where transportation stocks are buried. Uh, we have um, the XTN, which is the S&P transportation um, uh, industry group. And we have, a, a what, about 4%, yeah, 4% position in that. Um, <clears throat> we're going to be making some changes today based on our investment policy, and we'll be pruning about one or two of those and replacing them with, uh, with other ETFs. So... This, this doesn't change very quickly. We, we, I don't know, we make oh, a couple trades a month. It's very, it's not a very, very, we're not day traders or weekly traders. Well, well let me ask it's, you this, uh, because that actually brings up an interesting uh, point. So one of the major challenges with trend following strategies in general, and, and I would say this really goes back to the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, when I feel like these strategies started to become popular. If you look since that time, one of the major challenges has been whipsaw. Right. Getting tossed in and out of positions and then uh, missing upside moves. And I find this interesting just because if you look at the market overall, of course, it's been mostly in an upwards long term trend over the past decade plus. Can, can you talk about that and maybe how that's impacted your thinking around managing the CT? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because I lived through that. I've been <clears throat> I've been in this business for about 25 years and I served as um, 10 years as chairman of the pension review committee for a, a public a pension fund. And I was very much concerned about how the pension was working for the benefit of the employees. Um, here, here's the thing we recognized. Um, if we lose 10% in the market or the net asset value of your, uh, of your portfolio, we need to make back 11%. Very clearly, the mathematics of investing is against you. If you lose 25%, which is not uncommon in a market downturn, uh, we have to make 34%, just get back to even. And you say, well, all right, you get back to even. But for retirement people or people over 50 and are looking to, uh, you know, retirement, or even young people and certainly pension plans, you, you've lost time. And you, you don't have another lifetime to make as a 22-year-old as another, has a full lifetime to recoup it. And that gets to the long-term trends you have. So what, what we try to do is to avoid these, these, these massive dips in here. And, yes, we do raise cash when the market goes down. We have a measurement system um, that attempts to identify where we have increased systemic market risk. And that is uh, what is systemic market risk. That is when all stocks fall. Most stocks fall. And uh, people just don't. You, we just had an episode of that uh, March 28th a year ago. And also at the beginning of the fourth quarter, or was December of the fourth quarter of 18, when we had the temper tantrum, temper tantrum when stocks fell. We have a, a system that identifies uh, guardrails, if you want, that says if it reaches this, certain alarms flash, and then we have to make a decision. 
And at that point, we, we talk about it, and we then go, to, then go to cash or a bond, depending where we are in the bond market. You asked the question about avoiding whipsaws. Uh, really, we, we talked about it this morning, and we can't think about any time where we had a whipsaw condition. The reason for that is because, as I pointed out, we use strategic we, – we identify the primary trend – which is a long-term trend, and make a decision is to either go short, stand aside, or go long. Once we make a go-long decision, we then look for a tactical entry. And that's how we, we do it. We, you know, you look at, uh, we do what we call short-term counter-trend trading. Uh, we look for, we buy on dips in a long-term trend that's up. And I, we really haven't run into um, whipsaws coming if you follow the indicators methodically and mechanically, you will be whipsawed. And that's where you have, as I said, about 15 to 20% of what we do is left at the manager's discretion based on experience of what to do. All right. So only about two minutes left here. Given that experience and the fact that you do exercise some, some discretion here, um, you know, when I think about the way Euclid as a firm is analyzing the markets, the way you've described managing risk, clearly you're doing a ton of research and analysis on the back end of, of nearly every asset class. You're following economic indicators, uh, trends. We just talked about the holdings in EUCG. I'm really curious what's keeping you up at night? Because I feel like there's a lot of bubble talk right now. Um, I think there are clearly areas you can point to that look a bit frothy, whether you want to talk about SPACs or uh, tech companies with no earnings. We can talk about non-fungible tokens. You know, some people point to crypto. Uh, John, I'll send this to you with, with some closing thoughts. I mean, what do you think about the markets right now? I'll tell you what, whenever, when you were saying all that, Nate, my mind kept on going back to tulips for some reason. I'm not <laughs> sure why that is, but, you know, there's so many things going out there, and you, you mentioned keeping you up late at night, and, you know, interest rates are starting to rise. We have inflation, the big old boogeyman out there. It's been a huge threat later on this year. Taxes are increasing. We have this huge tug of war of growth versus value. You know, we have... You know, is the stay-at-home trade versus the uh, reopening trade? How relevant is that? Uh, we have small and mid versus large cap and this huge rotation going on. Uh, we're actually in the second turn back on that already this year. It's become more and more clear um, that we're going to see more movements within the overall marketplace. And because of that, if we're simply sitting holding one certain asset class or one um, a certain size of investment or one country or one region, well, then the portfolio is more inclined to be whipsawed. And so what keeps us up at night is we see investors that are so focused on one area and they're riding that one area trying to get the ultimate profit, and then they end up missing out of greater stability in the portfolio for long-term growth. And it goes back to what Carl said. Then they're going to have that period of time over one month, three months, six months, where they have a 25% drawdown. Then they got to make the 34% to get back to break even. Everyone needs to have that consistency in the portfolio, and that comes from measuring and listening to what the market is saying and then saying, let's put our money in front of where we're seeing greater momentum and greater volume of purchases. If folks want to find out more as far as on just our weekly analysis of the market, so the deep dive into it, uh, head over to our website at euclidinvestments.com, so euclidinvestments.com, and uh, go to the blog every single Tuesday. We put out our weekly review um, of what's moving in the market. Give you a good idea um, of where we see things moving right now. John, before I let you go, I know you're not going to give us your full uh, detailed roadmap, but any future ETF launches we could see from Euclid? Any insight you can give us into your uh, thinking around that? I'll tell you what. Let's uh, let's kind of whip the appetite a little bit. So Euclid's been received so well. Uh, we have a lot of great uh, communication on that as far as EUCG. Uh, we have a couple of other strategies actually up on the drawing board right now that we're discussing, and uh, hopefully we're going to get something released later on for the first part of next year. This is a strategy in which we are looking at really momentum inside different sectors um, and subsectors and countries, and we're looking at that, and we're saying where can we find some greater alpha or value to the client, and um, it's a strategy we can apply across any asset class, across any strategy, um, and it's been time-tested. So. We have a couple more strategies on the drawing board that we hope to bring out sometime soon, uh, looking toward the first part of next year. Well, gentlemen, congratulations on the launch of EUCG. Certainly wish you the best of luck uh, moving forward. And thank you for joining me this week. Great. Thanks, Nate. Very good. Thanks, Nate.
That was Euclid Investment Advisory's John Creekmer and Carl Ashley. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Hector McNeil, co-CEO of Han ETF, who's going to cover an area I really haven't spent much time on, the European ETF landscape, which I might add does include crypto exchange-traded products. And then Greg King, CEO of Osprey Funds, will talk Bitcoin ETFs, and he'll spotlight the Osprey Bitcoin Trust, which is the lowest-cost Bitcoin fund in the U.S. Until then, have a great week, everyone.